In August 2022, I visited the Embassy of the Free Mind in Amsterdam. I had discovered it accidentally when looking around the city on Google Maps. The name immediately intrigued me. And once I realized that it consists of a museum and library focused on the history of alchemy and other alternative North African and European spiritual schools and freedom of thought, I knew I'd be spending some time there. Amsterdam is beautiful, vibrant, and energetically as diverse as you can get. You find high culture and red light districts side by side. Young people from around the world in pursuit of the fabled drug experiences and well-heeled business people from multi-generational corporations mixing in the streets. History is tangible at every corner. All the while the Netherlands is a world leader in innovative thinking. And right in the heart of all these complex, fascinating dynamics, at the Kaiserschacht in central Amsterdam, the Embassy of the Free Mind provides an unexpected haven of intellectual and contemplative wisdom. The museum display is succinct, largely focused on one room full of highly symbolic alchemical art. What struck me as soon as I started the self-guided audio tour was how little I had known about the alchemical tradition across Europe and the important role it played in education, philosophy and even politics. I realized my own prejudices towards the term alchemy were quite misguided and the intellectual concepts on display in fact reflected very advanced humanistic, multidimensional and enlightened values and understanding. The embassy and its invaluable library are the result of the private initiative of a Dutch businessman, Joost Ritman, who was inspired in his interest in spirituality by the writings of a German mystic and scholar called Jakob Böhme. My interviewee, Dr. Lucinda Martin, describes Burma as the most important thinker that you've never heard of. And by the time Lucinda has outlined his influences across the ages, you may be just as incredulous as me that you never heard of him. Lucinda is the director of the Rittman Research Institute and the Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica, the core collection of rare books and manuscripts held at the embassy. Originally from the U.S., Lucinda has worked for over 20 years in European universities and research institutions. Her books and articles focus on religious dissidents, especially the contributions of these thinkers to modern human rights. Lucinda is both eloquent and passionate and offers an excellent introduction to some of the key holdings of the library and the embassy. Here is a little soundbite from our interview discussing Jakob Böhme. This whole light and dark, this dialectic idea is central to his thinking right. because he says um, that that really life has no meaning without death. Um, and this is also a scandal because people said, wait a minute, does that mean that that the universe was created intentionally to include evil and death and these things? And he says, yes, because otherwise we have no free choice. As a professional cross-cultural researcher, I am excited by the richness and rarity of the holdings of the embassy's library. As someone committed to their inner self-research, my brief visit showed me that this space holds great value for any of us whose past lives may have involved European mystical traditions to trigger memories and insights from our past that can guide our purpose in this life. 
I'm definitely planning another more extended visit to the embassy with a focus on research and a deepening of my understanding of my own ancestral spiritual traditions. I hope you enjoyed this interview, but even more I hope that you have an opportunity to discover the Embassy of the Free Mind as a valuable resource for both inner and outer research into the most significant aspects of yourself. So yeah, Lucinda, thanks so much for coming on and and speaking with me. And um, I would love to start with just you sharing a little bit about how you came to be the director of research, I believe, is that the title, at the Museum for the Free Mind? Yeah, I'm the I'm the director of the Research Institute, the Rittman Research Institute, and also of the library, which is the core collection of the of the Embassy of the Free Mind. And what you your readers uh, or your listeners might like to know is that we're actually several institutes under one roof. Um, we're in a house, which is a very famous house in Amsterdam called the House with the Heads. Um, it's a beautiful canal house with these big sculptural heads on it of, of Greek gods. Um, and this house was in the 17th century, uh, kind of a, a meeting place for intellectuals and free thinkers. And we like to think that that's what we are today. So we have the museum, which uh, teaches about these different hermetic traditions. And I can say more about what those are afterwards. Um, and we have uh, a cafe and we have a program of lectures and conferences and things like that. Um, we have the Research Institute, um, but the core of it really is the Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica, which is the mm -hmm. Library of Hermetic Philosophy. Um, and that's that's how it all started really was with the library. So I'm the director of the library and the research institute part of it. I'm not the director of the whole museum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can I can say that from visiting um, the museum in last last August, it was a really it felt like a little oasis in the middle of the bustling of Amsterdam. The, this is beautiful garden out the back with all the plants. I understand all the plants in the garden are based on on uh, herbs and different things that get used in hermetic. Uh, medicine, I think. So to sort of, is that right? Uh, there's a connection there to hermetic philosophy and the and the garden. Well, we we have different things in the garden. Um, first of all, it's just a beautiful garden, and it's full of you know in the spring it's full of tulips, as you might imagine for for the Netherlands. Um, but we we also have um, what we call an alchemical garden, and you can walk through and see the plants that were used by Paracelsus, for example. Um, and you know we have we have uh, signs explaining how the different herbs were used, and so also the symbolic meanings that they had for people. Um, and we 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 have different kinds of tours and programs in the garden in the summer, and we're constantly developing new things. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, one of the reasons I was keen to speak to somebody from the museum after my visit is I know that uh, quite a lot of the people listening to this podcast are researchers, are people who approach subjects that are perhaps not necessarily mainstream as different aspects of spirituality but tend to approach them in in a in scientific way and in research sort of way and i thought um i didn't really have time to discover and explore the library i just went for a little a little walk around and looked at the shelves but i i got the sense that there's a lot of things that maybe aren't on display just in that in that um that building uh, on the on the first floor or second floor yeah um, but, uh, yeah, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about what kind of things, uh, you 
store there and i just by the the name of it i get the impression well I'm, my assumption is that there's some old manuscripts and and um maybe things that aren't really accessible or even widely known that you might hold mhm mhm <clears throat> so the 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 library uh really begins in the in in the mid 15th century um with a little movement that your listeners know as the Renaissance, <laughs> because we have all of this knowledge coming from ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, which people don't usually know, um, and coming into Europe and having this big impact. Um, and this body of knowledge, we refer to it as hermetic or platonic hermetic philosophy. And you have to imagine this is a time when when um, these, these texts were actually produced in the first to second century after Christ, um, but they only get translated into European languages much later. So the the first to the second century is is where this knowledge is coming from, and it's a time they, when Egypt they were in Greek. Was, they were in Greek at that point, or in, in Egypt, in, from Egypt to Greece, and then into uh, Northern Europe. With that, so what we're what we're talking about is kind of a mix of cultures, because it was a time when the Greeks ruled Egypt. So you have elements from Egyptian religion mixing really with Platonic, so the thought of Plato um, and his and his kind of his school. And it's often hard to pick out, you know, kind of who said what kind of thing. But we have these 16 um, hermetic texts. It's called the Corpus Hermeticum um, that became very influential and, and other kind of texts related to that. And they said things like, um, philosophy is really just striving after God, <laughs> or um, a, a famous definition of God as um, a never, uh, an always expanding sphere, the point of which, the center of which, is nowhere, or is everywhere. <laughs> you can see it both ways. Um, so, and and the interesting thing is, we find this exact <clears throat> definition then through the big uh, Christian mystics, people like Meister Eckhart um, or Taula, these big heavyweight kind of Christian mystics of the Middle Ages <clears throat> were drawing on these texts and repeating a lot of what they said. And these ideas become embedded in Europe in ways that I think most of us today don't really recognize. For example, mm -hmm. the idea that all things are connected. Um, and I think, you know, many people believe this today, um, but they don't know where that idea comes from. Um, but it, it's indeed an ancient idea. Um, of course, there, there's at the same time the, the competing idea that there's kind of a hierarchy in the universe and we're ruled by some creator God. And that's, that's kind of a different idea from the idea that the divine flows through all things. And that we're all somehow connected in ways that we maybe don't understand. Mm. Um, so, so that's the beginning of our library. These hermetic you, texts. You, there's a couple of points I'd love to just jump mm. into because of what you just said, because it raises some interesting questions for me. Um, can, can I just quickly say that that uh, the other uh, sort of areas in our library that these that these uh, ideas flow into, just yeah. to give your your listeners kind of an overview. Um, so these ideas flow into alchemical texts, as I've already mentioned, Christian mysticism. They flow also into, into uh, Jewish mysticism, and we see uh, lots of parallels and connections between Kabbalah and, and Christian mysticism. And then we have uh, also 
um, astrology, astronomy, which are kind of same or, you know, developing together in this period. Um, so these, 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 all of these different discourses or all of these different bodies of thought are drawing on these ideas of everything being connected and somehow the world being divine and we just have to find out how it's all connected. Mm. And, and what I'm curious about, what I, uh, when you were talking, uh, so we're dealing with texts or with ideas and concepts that were um, expressed and I guess recorded in around the first century or so. Uh, do you have an understanding? Is, are you, have you been able to trace how these ideas more or less entered into Northern Europe? Because we're talking about a period before printing press. We're talking about a period where I'm assuming texts were uh, if they were multiplied, they were multiplied in small numbers. They would have been valuable. Um, how did people like you mentioned Meister Eckhart and another um, another uh, early Christian mystic, do you have a sort of understanding if there's certain monasteries where certain texts were kept and others where they perhaps weren't? Um, so that's one question and uh, sort of related to that maybe. I, I guess when you were talking, I get the sense, my, my sense is that across history there's been uh, a bit of a struggle between those two big principles that you outlined, the one where there's a hierarchical God is above and then there's certain people that come below that can speak for God on behalf and others can't, versus the more mystical traditions where we're all connected and we're all manifestations of, of something the, that mm -hmm. we've come to call God. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm guessing there that that goes perhaps in parallel with those texts floating through the European mystical schools so if you have any insights into into the historical currents that would be great well <clears throat> the question of how these things got transmitted is <laughs> my life's work and the life's work of many many other people <laughs> and um, it's a very detailed and complicated history and my own focus is mainly um, 17th century um, spiritualists and mystics so actually quite quite late in the story um, but, um, I can just give you one example that, yep. that, um, you know, already at quite an early date, <clears throat> we have a lot of alchemical knowledge coming to us from, from Arabic lands. And, um, you know, for example, a, a very important, um, voice was, was somebody called Jabir. Um, he's known in Europe as Gaber, <laughs> and he was called Gaber because Germans were the ones who translated these works. And these are already coming <clears throat> in the in the eighth century into Europe, so well before the Renaissance. Um, and there are many, many other examples of this. And there are people who study these these Arab texts and um, and classical texts, and um, you know they're filtering their way in, into Europe over the centuries. And I'm not an expert on this at all, but this is this is definitely influencing people. Um, but of course, very much still an elite discourse because it's the people who can read Greek and Latin, and it's the people who can afford um, to have manuscripts copied. <clears throat> and and then of course in the 15th century, finally books and and can afford to have things translated. And a big figure in this is um, is is the Medici the Medici family, who I, I'm sure you've heard of you know, paying for, for these Cosimo Medici, paying for these translations of the Corpus Hermeticum um, mm. into uh, into Latin, which was the language of learning in, in Europe at the time. Um, <clears throat> now, you, you then have 
of course, for, for many centuries, the monasteries um, were really the sites of learning in Europe. And, you know, the regular people did not have access to all this. Um, so monks and nuns studied studied these, these texts in depth. And there probably was also a sense that, that regular, you know, peasants would not have been able to understand these things, or you maybe you wouldn't even want them to know these things. Um, uh, and in fact, um, we, we uh, censorship and uh, uh, let's say polemics about what can be said is a big part of what our library is also about. In what sense is that in your library? Is something is the topic so, you explore? So it's it's not only that we that we collect the books of these thinkers um, who were you know picking up these mystical spiritual traditions and so forth. We also collect the books of the voices against them. So it's the debates about right. these ideas. What could be said in society? Um, and um, for example, we have we have a very interesting. Beautiful, large, um, early print of the letters of Paul, a translation, um, which was which was kept at a monastery in Germany. The translator um, was a Frenchman who we can think of him in a way as a kind of proto-Protestant uh, because he was part of the humanist movement to get back to the sources. And, you know, this is when people started to question, you know, is 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 are these translations, this Vulgate? Catholic Bible that we've always had. Is this really correct? Are all the translations correct? And you have the beginnings really of modern scholarship because people start to see how translating a word can make a big difference. And this is something that today, of course, um, you know, I've worked a lot on women mystics and and many feminist scholars point out that in the ancient um, in the ancient Hebrew, the word for God could be male or female, depending on what God was doing. Um, and then then it becomes, uh, you know, in in you go to the Lat the Greek and the Latin and so forth, and you know, God goes from being both male and female to suddenly being neuter to in the modern European languages being only male. Mm. <laughs> so um, people start noticing things like that and uh, wondering about these things and making new new translations. And so we have this beautiful edition of the letters of Paul. Um, and it's fine, you know, everything looks fine until you get to the commentary at the back. And then in the commentary section, large sections of the text have manuscripts pasted over the printed text. They have simply pasted over the parts that were a little yeah, we can say leaning in a Protestant direction or in a direction that the Catholic Church didn't like. Um, so uh, that that would be one example. Um, another example um, is that we have the first printed copy of the Quran, the first printed copy ever, because the Quran had always been um, handwritten. Mm. Uh, because, of course, there's a lot of worry about making sure everything's exactly correct. And, of course, it can only be done in Arabic, actually. Um, but uh, European scholars wanted to know what it said. So there's this Latin translation from 1545, um, but it was banned. And indeed, our copy says Liber Prohibitus. So it was on the list of prohibited books from, from the church. Um, but interestingly, the preface to this first printed copy um, is written by Martin Luther, 
who's not a, what we would call a, an advocate of free speech at all, but but he makes the argument that how can we argue against these texts if we don't even know what they say? So he's mm-hmm. arguing that we should be able to print at least for scholars. He's not, you know, he's not thinking that everybody in his congregation needs to read the Quran, <laughs> but he's at least saying, um, you know, that it needs to be available for people to know what it says. Um, where, and so where, these where are the was kinds the of debates. Sorry, where were, where was this Quran printed in Germany? In, in Italy, in Italy, in Italy, in Latin. Yes, and then somehow it made its way to Martin Luther. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not sure of the story behind that. How he mm. got involved in writing that preface, I have to check that for you. <clears throat> yeah, that's really, that's that's fascinating. Also, because it, it that that um, ideology maintained for a long time. So uh, I work uh, here with Aboriginal people in Aboriginal cultures, and we have um, had quite a few Lutheran missionaries, and they had precisely that ideology. So they did their best to learn the Aboriginal language and to understand Aboriginal cultures, because only then could they teach the people that what they thought was wrong, and they really had to come to their faith. So that's interesting that that goes back all the way to Martin Luther himself. Yeah, well, you know, there's a of course, um, many many authors, of course, thought that that there's only one sort of one path uh, to God, kind of thing. But then you have other authors. Um, many of the authors in in our library are saying, um, you know, and there is a passage in the New Testament um, when when Jesus says, um, you know, my Father's house has has many rooms, and some people interpret that to mean um, that there are many, there can be many paths, and. Um, and of course, this was a scandal. I, I mentioned um, when we talked before, I mentioned about um, Jakob Burma, who I've worked on quite a lot. And Jakob Burma says, why do people not realize that 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 Jews, Turks and heathens, by heathens, he means native peoples. Um, why do people not realize that these are all brothers? Do they think that God only belongs uh, uh, to Christians, you know? Um, and, he, and he also does believe that... Um, you know that that righteous people in different traditions um, can have salvation, and this was an absolute scandal in the 17th century. That you could so, say. So could you just that. could you just say say a little bit about Jakob Boom? Because I, I hadn't heard of him. Probably most people haven't heard of him. Just uh, provide a context of who he was. He's probably the most important uh, thinker that you've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, was a German living around 1600. He was a simple shoemaker. Um, he didn't have the opportunity to go to university, but he um, was self-educated and um, read a lot, apparently, and got very connected to um, to learned circles at this crossroads area in Germany. Uh, at that time, yeah, it's kind of a mixing area where you have Poles and Czechs and Slavs all coming together at this this trading crossroads. Whereabouts? Um, which part of Germany? It's a it's a town now. It's a town called Görlitz. It's now on the German-Polish border, mm-hmm. um, and so he, um, you know, he he became a, a great thinker in this in this mystical tradition, um, but also um, really a thinker who tried to combine all old knowledge with new knowledge. So you have to think that the world is really getting shaken up at this point. All these new continents have been discovered, and. And people don't know what to make of it. And astronomers have just recently discovered that contrary to everything they've always been told by the Bible, the church pastor, um, 
you know, the, the earth is not in the center of the universe. Um, in, indeed, the sun is at the center of our solar system. And, you know, there might even be other stars that you know, could be important. And um, so people are getting all this new knowledge. And um, and it's, it's a time of great insecurity. And um, many people you know, reject this new thought. And, you know, um, people are getting burned at the stake for, for pointing out that the, you know, that the, the, the earth is not in the center of the universe. And Burma says, wait a minute. Um, we don't have to say that the Bible is wrong or this new science is wrong. It simply means we haven't understood things properly to this point. We haven't understood how it all fits together. And he tries to make a system where somehow, you know, we can account for for all of this new knowledge, but also the old biblically based view. He wants to bring them together. Mm. And his thought uh, became very, very important for, for the big philosophers coming out of this German tradition. So people like Hegel, Schelling um, became very important in religious movements like German pietism. Um, Jakob Burma is really the one who made the idea of spiritual rebirth um, popular and important. Spiritual um, rebirth in what sense? In the sense of the born again Christianity, or in the sense of uh, successive lifetimes, or no, no, in the sense of 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 uh, being being reborn spiritually yourself, not not having new lives. But yeah. this idea is indeed taken up by evangelical Christianity, although it's transformed in a way that he probably didn't imagine. So. Um, Burma, Burma thinks that we have to um, be constantly in prayer and contemplation about rebirth. And what he means by rebirth is, is coming back to that original unity with the divine that we had at the beginning of creation. And according to Burma, at the beginning, we were not, we were not, you know, physical beings, um, we were all um, some sort of light beings um, coexistent with the divine. And he wants us to get back to these light bodies and these light bodies, which you can imagine are something like angelic bodies, um, were neither male nor female. Or you could say they were both male and female because they had everything in the universe within them. They were simply part of creation. Yeah. And he says, you know, we contained hot and cold and um, up and down and light. And this whole light and dark, this dialectic idea is central to his thinking right. because he says um, that that really life has no meaning without death. Um, and this is also a scandal because people said, wait a minute, does that mean that that the universe was created intentionally to include evil and death and these things? And he says, yes because otherwise we have no free choice. Um, so it, it, very controversial in his time. Quite radical. And his books were banned and burned. And, and yeah. did he write Did he write in Latin or in German or what? Not at all. And in fact, um, he's known as the first German philosopher. That's how Hegel referred to him. Um, because he did try to invent a philosophical language in German. Um, and that was also very inspiring for people that he could write in German instead of Latin. And that made his books, of course, even more scandalous because regular people could try to read them. Although he's considered also one of the most difficult German writers, is very, right. very dense. Um, and in, in fact, um, his, his works were so suppressed in Germany, they, they were passed around by manuscript underground. 
um, during his lifetime and, and afterwards, but they made their way to the Netherlands and they were first printed in the Netherlands, not in Germany. And um, Dutch translations and English translations existed before most of his works were printed in, in uh, German. And finally, we have 1682, um, a complete edition of his works being, being published in Amsterdam, although there were, uh, there were already many um, earlier works before that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you have his, his works in your library we have a huge section of Burma. We we probably have one of the largest um, collections of Burma's texts in our library, certainly the prints. Yeah. Um, and what I also wanted to say, to just to give your, your listeners a little taste of, of how he still influences us today. So he continued to be important for thinkers through the 19th and the, and the 20th century. Um, his work was really important for writers like Blake. There's a lot of Burma in Blake. Um, he's then picked up by uh, the modern art movement when it's kind of getting going. So you have artists like Hans Arp and and Vasily Kandinsky, all of these modern artists, they're sitting together around the turn of the 20th century in Zurich, and they read Jakob Burma aloud. And they're particularly inspired by his ideas of spontaneous creation and so forth. And, and this made a real contribution to the development of abstract art. Uh, so that's still with us today, and that's a stream that that is still is still going. And um, we even have modern science fiction authors um, picking up his work. So um, Philip K. Dick was very inspired by by Burma's idea of of the the universe being made up of light and dark, and he transforms that into his vision of a computer generated reality. So where everything is generated by the the nothing and the something. Which is which? Your ideas, Burma also talks about the nothing and the something, um, and out of that comes uh, uh, a story called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Which is then made into the movie Blade Runner. <laughs> so okay. when you watch, so really, Blade... he, you can trace him. <laughs> yes, as you, when you as watch you said. Blade Runner, um, you know yeah. we're going back to 1600 Germany. <laughs> <laughs> as you said, the most important person I've never heard about. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's a number actually. I've, I've not heard of many people who I'm sure have done great things. But it is fascinating when um, someone leaves such a record, and it, it, it speaks for the power of the written word to live on and to inspire generations um, later. So well, I'm, I'm particularly ins I'm particularly inspired by these early people who who hand copied his things yes. and kept kept them circulating underground and in letters. Yeah, absolutely. The commitment is is remarkable. Um, so you've got his work. You you've got the Corpus Hermeticus. If I understood that right, you said Corpus Hermeticus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's sixteen different books. Or what? So what does that, what does that consist of? Like how 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 do you describe that? What is that? Yeah, these are these are sixteen different texts, and they're different kinds of texts. Um, and and um, yeah, it's it's really about um, um, Egyptian religion, but as I say, from the, with this Platonic worldview, and um, yeah, just just incredibly influential. The ideas in there, and I think anyone who reads them will, on the one hand, be surprised at, at the parallels to um, you know sort of mainstream religion that we know, but on the other hand, sort of surprised and startled. Um, by by these Egyptian elements, um, 
yeah, I, I don't know much else to say about that. I'm not an expert on it at all, but um, it's it's a fascinating world if you start to get into it. They're they're quite short. They're 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 good translations, modern translations that one can read. Um, right. So, so yeah. And have you have you got the original? To... Have you got the original texts as well? Is that part of so, the legacy of the library or? So what we what we have are these are these um, first translations into Europe, these Latin translations, these early prints, and these are all these are incredibly rare books. Um, we we do not have um, you know second century manuscripts <laughs> yeah. um, to look at things like that. You would you, you know you have to go to Egypt. <laughs> That's good. That's the, they 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 are where they belong. But the information is accessible. I mean, that for most people, the Latin wouldn't be accessible anyway. Um, uh, so no, but there, there are English, there are English, German, Dutch. I guess absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And our, our library um, actually was one of the first to to um, you know twenty years ago already to to pay for the translation, uh, the proper uh, scientific translation of the Corpus Hermeticum into Dutch. And um, you know, since then there's been there's been wonderful translations into German and uh, you know English and other other languages. There were there are older translations as well, but um, what you see with the older translations is that people's assumptions about Christianity get imposed much more. And I think um, the more modern ones, people really try to figure out what these people were saying on their own terms and not try to put it in some sort of Christian framework. Um, yeah, just to give you an example, there there's uh, there are several passages that one could understand as kind of the classic, um, you know, fall into sin, and that's not what these texts talk about at all, actually. Right. So that's it's kind of been imposed on them. Yeah. Yeah. So so are you able to describe so what they actually talk about? So the the religious. Uh, sort of influence or interpretation was they're talking about sin, but how, what are they actually saying? I think what they're saying above all is they're they're talking about transformation. They're talking about um, contributing to this life. Um, so um, I think I think in the past they've often been understood as. Um, sort of in a in a way condemning this world as something physical and bad and and um i think that what what modern scholars are now saying is no wait a minute that's that's putting christian ideology or an an older let's say very conservative kind of christian ideology on these texts um i think now the consensus is much more that it's about um transforming yourself in order to to make something good in this world and beautiful right. in this world, yeah. Well, and that and that then maybe leads us to the question of alchemy because I was going to ask you what the relationship is between, say, Corpus Hermeticus and other things that you have and and alchemy because when I visited the museum, that seemed to be a big focus in the small display down the bottom. There was information about various alchemists, and I'd never really looked into alchemy before visiting i i knew there's this focus about uh, i think how it's often depicted is people trying to turn lead into gold and then yeah. I, I knew that in some ways yes people were trying to do that and trying to get to some sort of root substance 
but also that in some ways that was symbolic for an internal transformation within the human being. But I really um, liked some of the interpretation of the alchemical art that you have in the museum and how it represents these different aspects to the human being and the inner transformation. And so from what you've just described, I have a sense that at least how contemporary interpretations of the hermetic texts are that speaks to kind of the same value that we find in alchemy, which is the transforming of an individual, much as also what you described from Jakob Böhmer seems to have been his, his focus, maybe from a different from different influences. Well, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that people did alchemy or were interested in alchemy for many different reasons. There were those people who just hoped they could get rich from it <laughs> because um, indeed, um, in 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 an earlier period, there was the mistaken belief that all elements over time turn into gold. And so the idea was that if you perform certain um, chemical actions, you know, heat things or put them under pressure or whatever, you can speed up that process. Um, so that's that's what some people were about. But many, many others um, studied alchemy to uh, make medicines. Many of them were, were physicians. Um, many of them studied alchemy um, to, to develop sort of industrial processes to make ceramic or, you know, to treat metals in different ways. And indeed, many important discoveries were made this way. Um, and there were others. Um, I call them armchair alchemists who didn't mix chemicals at all. They were interested in studying chemicals and, and you know, these different, uh, let's say, the physical world, um, the interactions of the physical world, because they thought that these things were parallel to spiritual principles. So this is, again, Jakob Burma. He was one of these armchair alchemists. To right. our knowledge, he didn't mix chemicals, but he was very interested in the processes. And um, I, should, and I should maybe just jump in because I think I, I feel I just jumped over the fact that al alchemy, alchemy, I think, is from Arabic, right? And actually, literally, is the source of our word chemistry, isn't it? Alchemy is is what we refer to as chemistry. So, on one level, because often when we talk about alchemy today, and my association immediately is some kind of esoteric spiritual tradition, but as you just point out, actually, it's in many ways primarily chemistry for various purposes, medicine business and so on and then this other aspect well i think it's a very modern thing to take these apart yes and people in the early modern period didn't think these things were separated um so so you could study chemistry to learn more about god to learn more about scriptures even um because you would see reflected there the same messages if you only knew how to understand them that was that was what people believed and yeah. so we have um, alchemical manuals um, developing a very intricate um, symbolic language um, to communicate both about chemistry um, but also about spiritual things. So, for example, a, a very important idea in alchemy is the idea that nothing is ever lost. So you can you can heat a substance. And, you know, you might make it go up in vapors, you might cause it to burn and turn into ash, but nothing is lost. Yeah, the elements transform, but they are never lost. And this becomes then um, a metaphor for spiritual rebirth. So the human being, the body might die, 
But the idea was that in some form we continue, we're still part of the universe. Yeah. And um, you often see this or uh, boros, which is the, the snake symbol, like a snake eating its own tail, um, or sometimes it's a lizard. Um, and this this um, this symbol um, stands for this idea of nothing ever being lost. Yeah. Um, and there are other things. For example, a lot of alchemical books, you see um, uh, a symbol of someone coming from a grave. Well, whenever you see someone rising from the grave, it's again this idea of both spiritual rebirth, but also the idea um, within the chemical process that, you know, something may seem to be dead, but it can come to life, so to speak, in another form. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that's really a fundamental aspect of across spiritual traditions, isn't it? Well, I think one thing that, um, that I want to say about alchemy is that as a physical science, it's been mostly discredited um, because people forget that, um, you know, that medicines were developed using these processes and some industrial things. And they just think about, you know, this, this naive idea that, um, that we can turn lead into gold. Um, so alchemy as a physical science is often considered discredited. Um, but even if you consider it discredited as a physical science, I think there are many lessons in it for us today. You know, this idea that everything is connected um, and what that, the, the implications of that for us. So we have many of our authors pondering this and, and thinking about things in a way that's very, very modern. You know, we have 16th century thinkers saying, wait a minute, if everything is connected, what does that mean? for the way we treat animals. <laughs> yeah. And um, very progressive ideas. You know, we have, we have some vegetarians in the 16th century saying, I, you know, I cannot because, you know, they're, they're seeing them as continuous with us in creation. And just the fact that they're raising these questions, I think is, is very significant. Well, and it really changes our perspective of history, uh, I believe, to become aware of these things, because we often have this idea of simplistic view of how people were in the past and they were less aware they were less everything you know we are more involved that's i guess a part of the the evolution paradigm that i think we have as a society so to hear that people uh, valued animal rights and and as you said in the before we started recording in your research you focus on the emergence of human rights i guess in in um early in the 17th century uh so I think that's, well, that's really I, helpful for us to recognize that that in history that we're not reinventing things that these ideas have been there for a long time and there might even be things that we can draw on um, from the past. Well, I think you know humans make um, um, two steps forward and one step back. <laughs> so it, the, these discourses are really these ideas are are not new. Um, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation about Pietist women. Uh, 17th century um, mystical women. And I was very inspired by the way that they used um, religion to, to find a voice and to start publishing, which was, of course, forbidden for women um, and became religious leaders and so forth. And by the way, we have many of their writings also in our library. Right. Um, yeah, and and indeed, many of the authors in our traditions um, are arguing that male and female are equal parts in the divinity. And in fact, the female element in God, Sophia, which is Greek for wisdom, 
um, is is a very important idea for for many of our authors. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's often a missed uh, aspect of European spirituality. I think in at least in northern in northern Europe, <clears throat> maybe well, in particularly some... in in west in Western Europe, uh, yeah. Sophia is very important in the Eastern Church. Um, but um, I would say in a very sort of contained way. <laughs> yeah. 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 And what about uh, just uh, because my own my own um, research focus is, tends to be indigenous cultures. Have you got does the library have records uh, relevant to indigenous peoples anywhere um, outside, or is the focus very much on European traditions and I guess North African traditions with Egypt? So the the rare books in our library are about eight thousand, and they're really focusing on. So the classic area of Western esotericism. So these discourses I mentioned that were very important in the Renaissance and then coming out of the Renaissance, the developments uh, mostly in Europe. We do have some manuscripts um, uh, and books from parallel traditions in, in Persia and Islam and so forth, Sufism. Um, now that's the 8,000 old and rare books. But we have in all 28,000 books um, because we try to um, collect modern books. Um, you know, we have all the secondary literature. And in those areas, we try to cover the full range. So, um, you know, all of the modern movements and, you know, also indigenous and uh, things like that. Um, we do we do um, have that covered in our in our library. Yeah. Just not in the core old collection. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's clearly that's the focus. And you'd mentioned to me before that the the um, the library is considered or is being or has been registered by UNESCO. Did yeah. You say so about we, that? yeah, we just um, in November um, were added to the um, Netherlands UNESCO registry. Um, which um, for me is a huge success story because most of the books in our library were banned and they were burned over the centuries. And now you have UNESCO saying that these very progressive uh, human rights kinds of issues were present in these banned and burned books. Yeah, so um, it's it's really a complete reversal. And I'm very happy about it because I've spent my career working on these so people who, you know, many people thought, oh, this is fringe, this stuff. Um, and they worked on better known figures who were frankly uh, n not what we would call great champions of human rights. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that we've gotten the UNESCO status. Yeah. Right. And what does, what does that mean? Uh, like, what does it actually mean? UNESCO, they, they recognize items of, of, cultural significance to the world, right? Is that sort of an acknowledgement of that? Yes, yes. They they try to recognize um, things that have been of, of great cultural significance and um, and things of, of relevance for all humanity, really. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it's a it's a it's a real honor and um yeah, we're happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Um and so if I was I had I had maybe two hours in in the institute all up enjoying including enjoying a very nice piece of cake in your cafe, um, wander around the library. But if I if somebody wanted to come and um, 
spend a couple of weeks i don't know researching in your library how does that how does that work is it the public people can just come do you have to because you have to pay to join to, to come in through the to walk do the museum tour so people can come. Um, we, as you say, we have the cafe. You can have a coffee, and then we have a large uh, hall where we have um, images displayed from the books. So our books. Um, an interesting thing about them is that they're full of fascinating and kind of mysterious imagery. Um, so we have this on the walls, and um, we have um, we have. Uh, an iPad, you can go through and read about them. We have an audio tour you can go through. We also offer regular tours. So I have uh, I have colleagues who will also take you on a tour, uh, not only about these images and so forth, but uh, a tour of the history of the house, which is also quite interesting um, to learn about, you know, this beautiful canal house and the role it's played in free speech in Amsterdam. Um so, so that's nice. And um, if you're, if you're, you know, your listeners have enough time, they can also book with me a rare book tour. And I spend about an hour showing some of the most important treasures um, in the in the library and explaining the different collecting areas and how they fit together. And I think that that's really, really valuable for people. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can also do in the upstairs area, we have a reading room where you can just sit. And read not the old fragile books, but you can you know just kind of go to the open stacks and look at the research and and kind of dip into to what people are saying about these traditions and read a little. And then we have an exhibition space where we have changing exhibitions. Um, at the moment, we actually have an exhibition um, which is an introduction to our collection, which is also fantastic. So in each case, you would see a different. A different part of the collection highlighted. So there's a case about Kabbalah, and there's a case about magic, and so forth. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, but what sort of research support? If someone did want to read, I don't know, original texts by Jakob Böhm or something else mm-hmm. uh, in the older selection, is there arrangements that people can make to spend a week coming into the library and? working on materials, that kind of thing? Like, are you open to, is it a, is it a public research facility, essentially, where... Yeah, it absolutely is. That's what the that's what the Research Institute is is there for. Yeah. Um, part of what it's there for, anyway. Um, but people need to, to write to me or to uh, the curator, Jose Bauman, ahead of time, so that we can prepare the books for you. And um, you would sit in the rare book room and and work directly with with the books. And indeed, we have um, a regular stream of professors and uh, doctoral students and people like that coming. Um, of course, it's mainly specialist because many of the books are in Latin or German or you know different languages. Um, but they're certainly accessible. And um, if you make an appointment, you can see any book if you make an appointment ahead of time. Yeah, I think look, there's, there's. Uh, I mean, I was curious about other alchemists and so on that that are you know on display there, but I think you've given us a really nice taste of some of those key ideas, and I really would encourage people to either go to Amsterdam, especially to visit the museum, or if you're in Amsterdam, definitely make the time to to spend uh, half a day or so. Um, well, what I'd like to to tell your listeners also is that we have uh, we have a lot of of digital offerings. 
So, you know, you have many listeners, I'm assuming, in Australia who will not be able to pop around to to visit us at the Embassy of the Free Mind. Um, But all of our lectures are streamed online. Um, And we also have have quite a lot of stuff just just to read and look at online, to explore. Um, You know, we have our social media things where we let people know um, constantly what's going on and uh, and also, you know, just little tidbits about books. You know, we regularly publish little, you know, things with the images and the books and and people seem to really enjoy that. So yeah. I, I would encourage your your listeners to check out our website. Have you have you digitized any of the the rare? I would imagine that would have been a, an important step. Those items that you don't really want people handling all the time that you've digitized those. And uh, is any of that available online? Well, first, I want to say that it's not that we don't want people handling things. <laughs> we we right. like it when people work with the books, but indeed, some books are fragile, and you have to be quite yes. careful with them and so forth. Um, you know, like even breathing on them is not so good. So, well, exactly, wear- that's that's what yeah. I was thinking. Of. Do, there are certain items do- where you don't want hundreds of people to go and <laughs> touch them. Yeah. 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 When I do rare book tours, I usually limit it to eight because we don't want too many people breathing on the books. <laughs> no. Um, let's see. I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, whether items say. are digital, whether they're digital. Uh, the, di- the digitization. Exactly. So um, we've digitized, um, I would say, about 2000 of the most important and most rare books. And it's an ongoing process. We want to digitize more. Um, actually, we had a quite a nice grant that many people might have heard about the the author Dan Brown <laughs> contrib- oh, yeah. made a large grant for us to start the digitization project so that was the beginning of it and and we're still continuing with that and people can find these online by the way you have to go to our online catalog and um and then you'll 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 usually see the title page to the work and in some cases you can see more Right. Okay. I'll put links to that. So maybe you can send me the links and I'll add them to, to the show notes. And so did Dan Brown use uh, your library for any research for any of his books? Is that why he, he, he did indeed. Yes. He did indeed. Sense. And and he's not the only one. Many famous authors have used our library. Umberto Eco has used our library and uh, Dan Brown and um, yeah, several, several others. So. <laughs> it's yeah. a it's a great resource. Also, many artists visit us because of the, you know, this fascinating imagery that I talked about. Artists are constantly coming to us and seeking information and and uh, and inspiration. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, as I said, I felt quite inspired after leaving your library. I'm a I'm a huge fan of libraries generally. I feel that they sort of summarize some of the best things about humanity in the sense that they're freely accessible to everybody. They are repositories of our knowledge and of our creativity and of people coming together and sharing and so on. And then to find a a library like yours uh, um, that maintains so much uh, ancient knowledge and, and ideas that are important to to human development and that have been repressed for a long time i think that's such a valuable a valuable thing to collection and, and uh resource for humanity to to maintain so it's very exciting well, the the founder of the library jost Rittman, um he says that that books are the footsteps of humanity 
So he he imagines, you know, humanity marching into the the future, uh, you know, and it's documented by books. Yeah. And, and that really is the case. Yeah. 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 No, it is. And, you know, as someone who works with uh, largely with people whose culture is oral, uh, I value that just as much. I think there is the, the knowledge that's maintained in those cultures is remarkable. And at the same time, I witness the fragility of it and the way it takes uh, one generation of people is lost and then the knowledge is, is lost. So, um, yeah. yeah, books have really transformed that, that we're able to trace uh, bits of information and knowledge that gets passed, has been passed on since the first century to the present. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, thank you very much, Listen. I really appreciate it. You're taking the time. I'm glad we finally managed. And uh, I don't know if there's any, any parting pieces of information that you might have missed that people need to know. Um, you know, I could probably talk all day about these things. It's it's my passion. <laughs> but um, I would just encourage your uh, your listeners to to check out our website and to to let themselves be inspired. If you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, please take a few moments to leave a positive review on Apple Podcast and share it on social media to help others find it. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes for this episode, including any links to their work and their contact details. This podcast is a labor of love. If you want to support me and get some practical info for your own exploration of consciousness, you can purchase my book, Multidimensional Evolution, from Amazon and other online bookshops. Or if you want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, you will have to order it in. You can check out my blog on multidimensionalevolution.com where I write about all kinds of topics relating to multidimensionality and our evolution um, that just pique my interest at different times. Finally, get in touch via email or on the Multidimensional Evolution Facebook page. Whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics, I always love hearing from people as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I'm sending you my very best energies. The tune seeing us out is called Akasha from Finnish fusion artist Axel Tesla.